1: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. No one ever really understands young people, do they? Nowadays, the talk is about Gen Z and their distinct media and personal habits. But in the 1960s, the establishment was trying to contend with the rising boomers. Few people in the mainstream press could see and present the youth movement of the time in its kaleidoscopic creativity, power, and weirdness. Enter the young Jan Wenner, a Bay Area kid with huge aspirations for chronicling his generation through the music that they loved. The magazine he created, Rolling Stone, remains iconic. And Wenner has a new memoir out, looking back on his life and times, the drugs, the sex, the rock and roll, and how it all began in San Francisco in a warehouse on Brandon. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Nowadays, Rolling Stone, San Francisco origins feel as much like lore as knowledge. One time, I was in the offices of Mother Jones around this huge wooden table. And legend has it that it once sat in the Rolling Stone offices and that a particular gash on it came from the knife of Hunter S. Thompson. Or was it someone else? No one can quite remember. And still, that table glowed with the aura of the most glamorous period of San Francisco magazine-making history. So when we saw that Jan Wenner was publishing a memoir that would detail his creation of Rolling Stone, and that at least a couple hundred pages would unfold in the bay, we knew we had to have him on. Welcome to Forum, Jan. Thank you, Alexis. Good to be here. So finally I can get my question answered. Was that
2: big oak table, the one that you referenced in the memoir, <laughs> did you actually leave it to Mother Jones? No, I didn't leave it to Mother Jones. I had to take it with me. It was too historic. <laughs> And I kept it for years. And, in fact, I ended up going to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum. But the table had knife notches in it and lots of of memories. Uh, But Mother Jones did take over our offices when we left. And my office was deemed too big or too central for uh, the more democratic Mother Jones structure. So they turned it into a library. And that desk ultimately ended up uh, as the inspiration for the set of The Charlie Rose Show. Oh, my gosh. I didn't He worked behind all the time. Wow.
1: So what? tell me a little more about that media milieu that you worked in at that time. Early 20s San Francisco, you're working in traditional journalism, you're doing a lot of acid, and you're also
2: working for an offshoot
1: of Ramparts, like another legendary Bay Area magazine.
2: Well, the offshoot of Ramparts was the Chronicle, and I think the exam, everybody was on strike, so Warren Hinkle, the then editor of Ramparts, decided to the opportunity to a little dream of his, which was publish a local newspaper. So this is the bi-weekly Sunday Ramparts, and that's where I had my first real full-time job. And it was a small little affair, but uh, I was kind of one of the key editors of it and wrote a lot of it and got to write rock reviews, and it was kind of my little training ground. And from there, I was where I directly went into starting Rolling Stone, using Mm -hmm. some of the same people and uh, some of the same ideas and the formats, and uh, uh, it was incredibly different Million, I mean, San Francisco was a very small town then. Yeah. In what ways? Like, how? Like, you'd just run into rock stars walking on the street? No, that kind of I went mean, there too many rock stars running down the street. No, but kind of everybody from every strata who was involved in the art scene knew each other. And everybody hung out at El Rico's on Broadway. And uh, it was half the size of what it is now. I mean, I walk around, drive around San Francisco now, and uh staggering. Now. The number of big box buildings and built everywhere, so almost a different place in certain parts of town. Mm-hmm. Do you ever go by the first Rolling Stone offices, which were, I believe, at six forty five Brandon, right? Just a- no, they were at they were seven forty six to Street was our second office, and seven forty six Brandon between Fifth and Townsend or Sixth, I forget where. <laughs> yes, I have been by there. It's been painted; it's no longer pink, and it's some kind of warehouse. Oh, wow.
1: And do you, I mean, does that bring up any feelings for you? Or are you just sort of like glad we left for New York? Or do you think like, oh, what it if we stayed? It does bring up
2: feelings. I mean, you know, I spent a good, magical part of my youth there. And uh, uh, I, I feel with a little nostalgia every time I go by. Mm. So in your memoir, you describe that
1: mentor of yours, Ralph J. Gleason, was right. kind of, I guess we'll call him the patron saint of uh of Rolling Stone, you know, a San Francisco Chronicle uh, music
2: critic. How did you get to, to know Ralph J. Gleason? Well, I was a regular reader of his column. Ralph was the only mainstream music critic, a jazz critic in, in the country who paid any attention to rock and roll and liked it and saw it for what it was. For there was worthy music that it carried a really important message about the you know, the human condition and about America and, and it made people dance and happy and that these people, like, Bob Dylan and the Beatles and Simon & were the poets of our time and uh, communicated to young people and they were and he understood all that and liked it as music as well. So I was reading his column and I was writing kind of a similar imitation column for the Daily Cal. I was a Berkeley student then. And uh, we got to we met and we got to know each other and got to like each other a lot and share the same ideas and opinions and point of view and he took me under his wing. He got me my job at Rampart's and then he helped me start Rolling Stone.
1: I wanted to make sure we played his
2: voice on the radio, so That'd we have here. Here's the he a, was a uh, big KQED guy. Oh yeah, yeah. He, he hosted
1: the show Jazz Casual, yes, right? Exactly. That was produced and out.
2: a legendary pro, com, press conference he put on once with Bob Dylan at the KQED. Stu- oh, that's right. That was him studio. that put that
1: on. Yeah. I wish we had that cut because it's a uh, it, look it up on YouTube, everyone. It's a lot of fun. Um, let's. This is uh, Ralph J. Gleason. Just a tiny snippet of an interview he did with Jerry Garcia.
0: In the last year and a half, San Francisco was literally exploded with music. The rock bands are some of the most interesting bands in the country, and one of the most exciting and interesting bands in San Francisco these days is the Grateful Dead. We're talking to the Grateful Dead, particularly to Jerry Garcia, the lead guitarist. Jerry, what kind of music does the Grateful Dead play? (laughs) Uh, Loud. (laughs) Loud music, loud uh, music. Dance music for dances
3: at dances. Where does it come from? Do you write all your songs? Uh, no. We uh, we write Uh, some of it. We steal it from a lot of places. Yeah, we steal it from a lot of places. As many as as we we can find, as a matter of fact. We're clever thieves. (laughs)
1: <laughs> that was uh, Ralph J. Gleason. What, what do you think about it as you just hear Ralph's voice and hear Jerry Garcia as a young man?
2: Oh, it totally puts me back to that time and place. You know, really kind of warm and tender and that naivete of which I was at least exploring things. And, you Yeah, know, very funny Jerry Garcia and that kind of attitude of the time of, you know, being a little sarcastic and mm-hmm. everybody's trying to be funny about things. What kind of music do you play? Loud. You know. Somebody asked Dylan at the press conference that Ralph put on KQD well what are you left wing or right wing what's your politics left or right he says oh well I'm kind of up and down.
1: <laughs> you know he also you know Ralph Gleason was also a quite serious uh writer and he published an essay that you that you mentioned in the memoir that was an American Scholar and I, I went and looked it up and uh, some of these lines in here are, are pretty amazing, particularly as we think about trying to make sense of the the latest generations now. Uh, here's just a little quote. Automation, affluence, the totality of instant communication, the technology of the phonograph record, the transistor radio had revenu- revolutionized life for youth in this
2: society. And that was true for you too, right? Growing up in Marin. Never so true as it is today. Even truer. Yeah. Even truer. I mean, Tech, every, everything that he cited there is more advanced than he could possibly have seen in 1966 when he wrote that essay. He uh, talks about technology and the record player. I mean, we don't have record players. You know. We have instant you know, music free at any time, any place in the world of every kind that you possibly want. Anything you want to listen to, anytime, everywhere. I mean, that's impacted the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Ralph, I think, foresaw all those trends happening. He has exa- picked up but it did it did change everything music, technology just the sheer factor of the size of the baby boom and it's the education it was given and uh, the affluence it had. It yeah. impacted every bit of America and the voice of that was rock and roll mm-hmm. and Ralph right. understood that and we understood it and that's what we set out to cover and to become a part of that voice, to treat the music, with respect and with the kind of historical gravitas it added, and with the joy and fun of the lyrics and, and the sound of it and the feeling of it. But bring that message throughout the United States and throughout the world to every corner of the United States so you could get to some little small town where somebody was figuring it out all by themselves, but there was nobody to talk to, and that, yet they had Rolling Stone as kind of a letter from home, as Ralph had called it.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard...
2: Um, I don't think Stuart Brand was quite as like self-consciously
1: into spreading the message quite in exactly that way. But heard that for Whole Earth Catalog, too, for like a how did you see yourself in relationship to these other magazines
2: or ways of kind of discovering the counterculture? Well, I didn't have too many, too much respect to most of them. But uh, what Stuart did was great at Whole Earth Catalog Uh, and another side of this technological revolution is. Spiritual revolution and this, you know, treat the resources of the earth as precious. Mm -hmm. A revolution about that attitude toward the earth and the planet we live. Whole Earth Callic. He was great. Stuart was a contributor for several years to Rolling Stone and Mm -hmm. actually, I think, wrote the first known article about in the consumer press about Silicon Valley in Space Wars.
1: Such a good story. Yeah. There you go. Um, one more uh, Ralph J. Gleason quote, you know, he wrote an American scholar. This was truly a new generation, the first in America raised with music constantly in its ear, weaned on a transistor radio involved with songs from its earliest moment of memory. So do you have a song that's like that for you that you think back to when you were a kid in Marin and you think like this song?
2: There's a bunch of them, but the ones that stick out in my mind that I remember really were, Heartbreak Hotel. Mm-hmm. There's this weird song by a woman named Gogi Grant, which was the Wayward Wind. Is the Westward Wind something like that? And uh, uh, I love this one by Buddy uh, Knox called Party Doll, which I mentioned in the book. All I want is a party doll to come with me when I'm feeling wild, to be <laughs> ever loving, true and fair, and run my fingers through her hair. That's so good. Let's. I have to say, we have this. Let's play a little bit.
1: Of it. When all oh. I want to be
2: when I'm feeling wild to be ever loving true and fair to run her fingers through my hair
3: come along and be my heart and doll come along and be my heart and doll come along and be my heart and doll i'll may love to
2: you to you i'll may love to you well, Jan, do you think it holds up you still love it i love it i don't even know I, all I can do is love it. I don't. I can't even criticize it. But think of that last line in that in that chorus there. All I want to do is make love to you. All I'm gonna do is make love to you. Think about that in 1956 or 57 to a 10 or 12 year old. You know, just starting to explore all the things of adolescence and maturity and that chemical change. And there's this singer going, and all I want to do is make love to you. You know, come along and be my party you doll.
4: Know? Yeah, yeah. It's killer.
1: I mean, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. I That song is such a... I'm glad you had it there. It's such a beautiful little uh, shard of that time. We're talking with Rolling S- Oh, go ahead.
2: I'm going to say, the song, heard with today's ears, or if I was a young person today, I would think that is a really antique song. <laughs> I mean, I would think that is like when I grew up, you know, my parents might play, you know, Sinatra or somebody. I mean, it's far away. Go, But it's still great. Yeah.
1: We're talking with Rolling Stone Magazine's Jan Wenner about his new memoir, Like a Rolling Stone. And We want to hear from you. What are your memories of San Francisco's rock and roll scene? And what would you discover through Rolling Stone? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. This music is another little surprise. This is Ace of Cups featuring one of Jan Wenner's great friends, Denise Kaufman.
2: Pleased to meet you. Hope you my
1: name. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Rolling Stone Magazine founder Jan Wenner about his new memoir, Like a Rolling Stone. That was, of course, Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones. Uh, Jan, we were talking about building kind of Rolling Stone and building along with this generation. And you have a great quote in the memoir. You say, we were in the music business, the hippie business, and the magazine business. Each had its own priorities, values, and ideas. They often conflicted. Where do
2: you think you settled out on that? Um, you know, still managing all three in a way, uh, in, in different shapes, and different ways. I mean, we continue to be in the music business. Not in, not exclusively so, totally undependent financially on the music business. They were no longer advertisers supporting the magazine because of their own financial problems, but still a very much a priority on mine was the music and the musicians, the artists who are doing it. That was still a big priority. In the hippie business, uh, well, let me go to the magazine for a second. In the, in the magazine business, we became a big magazine. We depended on being a part of the magazine business, a part of that whole structure. Gets magazines out and puts advertisements in, and so so very much in the magazine business that became kind of our a main, the main driving uh, driver of our life, as if it was breath and you know the functioning of, of the organ. The hippie business, in it, very much so, in the way that uh, uh, the ideals remained the same. Uh, we weren't you know going around advocating every you know tie dye etc. or stylistically that anymore, but the very ideals of of, of human behavior and the very ideals of treating people as your equals, as your brothers, as part of this whole one living organism, sorry to get so hippie on you, of the earth. Uh, <laughs> San Francisco radio. People are with you, Jan. Don't yeah. worry. <laughs> I was in Marin County last night speaking uh, at a bookstore called Book Passage in yeah. Corte Mandera, where the wonderful welcome of the bookstore and all the... The people of Moran, those are my people. And uh, all came out. It was great to see everybody. But um, we still, you know, true that I was still in the end, true to those ideals still. Modified mm-hmm. by, you know, the facts of age and growing up, maturity, learning things, more wisdom you accumulate over the years. But nonetheless, at core, the same. You know, mm-hmm. we're in this to do good, to have fun, not hurt anybody, make the world a better place.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, we got some uh,
1: callers with some memories to share. I oh. want to make sure we get to some of them. Joy in Oakland, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, this is Joyce. I'm calling from uh, Oakland. Jan, I remember meeting you in your office in um, San Francisco, and that beautiful oak desk. <laughs> um, I I I came to visit you, and I met Annie Leibowitz and you had all of those um, your uh, signature. Um, uh, covers of covers on the wall I remember that and I was representing novelist Ken Kesey oh, no. and as a result of that do you remember uh, you may not remember me but certainly you remember Ken Kesey of course and as and as a result you were able to come to Pleasant Hill and we were able to um, oh, yeah. journey on do you did remember? you come with us
2: to Oregon to, to I mean to you we are to the governor's office
3: I did, I did oh I and, and uh, I can't remember anyway I don't I, I remember we went to li- like Lewis and Clark uh, college uh-huh. do you remember all of that?
2: I that don't remember every detail, but I certainly remember the event and spending a night with Kezi and uh, going into having this wonderful relationship with Ken for years. He wrote quite a few pieces of Rolling Stone in the end. He traveled to Egypt for us, uh, among other things and, and it was fun. I met Ken. When he was doing the acid tests before uh, uh, Rolling Stone started, when the pranksters were starting to gear up, and um, I-, I thought I always thought Ken was a really important part of Rolling Stone and our consciousness, and certainly one of the great writers of his days, and, and, and a real fellow traveler, yeah. crazy but a fellow traveler. <laughs> but thank you, Joyce, for that memory. Yeah, Joyce,
1: that really That's is great.
2: I love love here special one. Yeah, thanks so much, Joyce.
1: Um, you know, I did want to ask about you know some of the other. Characters that you ended up becoming, you know, pretty pretty close with um, in their in different ways. Uh, you know, you'd gone from being a 21 year old founding a magazine, you know, on the edge of the continent, to suddenly talking with and hanging out with Mick Jagger and John Lennon, two of the biggest rock stars ever in the history of the planet. Um, you want to talk a little bit about the two of them? Can you even
2: compare the two of them, or no? Well, I can. They both came out of the same. Milieu of London in 66, uh, 67. They were great pals with each other then, and they kind of ruled the town of London. You know, they were swaggering young, you know, 22 year olds or something like that, and, uh, you know, going everywhere, nightclubs and having fun. And, uh, you know, what must have been a hell of a period uh, to be around and to be them, uh, just full of it. And they're, you know, they both very, Eng- you have to understand, they were both very English. John was from Liverpool, uh, and, you know, a t- tough guy and his own thing was, you know, sarcasm and quick-wittedness and, uh, you know, a bit, a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, but having a Mick was from the suburbs of London and much more, more posh and middle-class even, uh, as, you know, but middle-class too posh. And, um, Sociable and easier, more, you know, to deal with. And they were both terrifically creative. Um, John was very outgoing, outspoken, brash. Mick, on the the other hand, was pretty much quiet, reserved. Uh, You know, a more dynamic performer. I don't know. They were both terrific and very different in their ways, but also very similar. Does that give you no man's clue? Do you think they read you as Californian, as San Franciscan, as American? I I think all of that, but particularly at that time, San Francisco was such a magic uh, thing, a magic place in, in in its reputation, and people were looking to San Francisco. And you know, if you were if you went to you were in London, you were I would be a representative of World Hippie headquarters and World Hip headquarters in San Francisco. So they they liked it and they were all curious about it, and they wanted to come here and see it and visit it. So that. And all, as always, an American. You know, the Brits. Mm-hmm. Americans are always a little bit cruder and crasser and more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: uh, I I want to talk about the 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 dream beginning to sour. But I, first, I have to go to Susan in San Francisco. Susan, welcome to the show.
3: Hi! What a great program, Jan. Uh, my mom is Nancy Tibbin, and I remember walking from Marina Junior High down Broadway, and you're in the mailroom, and there was Mom, and there was Eldridge Cleaver, and there was this really cute guy in the mailroom, and that was you. <laughs> <laughs> very <laughs> sweet. But, um, uh, congratulations on all you've done, and it's just very cool to hear this whole story. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's Thanks so much. for sharing Funny.
1: that. This is a special okay. place, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, isn't someone going to call in and yell at Jan? I thought that was supposed to happen, Jan. Thought... It, it used <laughs> to
2: happen, but now I think at last we're all looking back on those times and realizing how great they were and how much fun we all had. And that Rolling Stone did a great job. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um,
1: the dream of San Francisco, hippie-dum, and rock and roll... You know, when you go back in the history books and this time kind of gets compressed, it almost seems like one paragraph to the next, that moment ended. Is that how you felt it or did it stretch out for longer? Are you speaking about the way I wrote the book? No, not even Uh, the way you wrote the book, but just kind of historically, it feels like that uh, moment of flowering is is gone almost as soon as it arrives.
2: uh, Within a year or two years for sure. Uh, very much so because, I mean, I think it was a very delicate thing. It's very fragile. I mean, it was based on kind of ideas and and stuff in the air and drug culture and things that, you know, have a, a half-life and, and, and tend, tend to evaporate because they were so magic, you know, that you were in a mist almost and it went away. So it's a logical thing to do. I mean, the, and then of course, when the mist clears, uh, you do end up having such phenomena as altamont you know or charles manson mm-hmm. that we're kind of there all all waiting to happen all along and maybe it had happened because you were kind of misty-eyed going into it that's likely and it caused that but it didn't it didn't define it or redefine it it altered a little i mean i don't think the like altamont i don't think that was the end of anything i think it was the beginning of getting real you know mm. and uh it happened the way it should. Those, those kind of things throughout history and culture don't last long. You know, the, the Paris scene in the 20s lasts two years. You know, the jazz age lasts two years. And, uh, it's because they're so uh, dreamlike. Yeah. I want
1: to uh, play a cut of your interview with John Lennon. This is in 1970. Very famous. Yoko Ono as well. John Lennon, Yoko Ono. Uh, although we're only going to hear John Lennon here.
0: It's like I no longer believe in, in myth, you know, and Beatles is another myth, you know. I don't believe in it, the, the dream's
3: over. You know, and I'm not just talking about the Beatles, I'm talking about the generation thing, you know, the dream's over, like, it's over, you know, and we gotta, well I have, anyway, personally gotta get down to so-called reality.
1: So you and John Lennon obviously on the same wavelength here uh, in 1960. What did it mean for you, running Rolling Stone, to get down to reality, to get
2: to get real? I, I think we decided we better be more serious about our jobs and take them more seriously, and start looking around us a little more broadly, um, that uh, we couldn't be governed by what I then called what I've recently called hippie orthodoxy uh, much longer, that uh, we were in a new world with a kind of more serious role to play in this world besides just promoting and being a cheerleader. We had to uh, be self-critical. Um, I don't think we... There was no point in which you say, oh, flip the, flip, the, flip, the switch from irresponsible responsible, or something like that, not to say that we were irresponsible, which we weren't, but it's a, a change in attitude as... John says, it's "Time to grow up, you know, and and face adulthood, or reality, or whatever he calls it." And it's very weird to hear, not weird. It's, it's very powerful to hear those words in John's voice and to hear that voice again. I can tell; it brings me right back to where I was sitting mm-hmm. in the very space where I was sitting and talking to him and discussing that. You know, tell had, us about
1: it. Tell us about it.
2: Well, he had put out that record, uh, his first solo record, and this was a song called. The Dream is Over, I think was the name of the song. Or God. God, God. It was called God, right. And they're, uh, yeah. So, wow, he's not. He's now sort of renouncing the Beatles and Bob Dylan and a generation. I don't believe in Zerman. I don't believe in magic. I don't believe in Yoko. All I believe in is me, Yoko and me. That's reality. That was the end of the song. And to hear somebody of John Lennon's stature as a, the, leading figure of rock and roll at that time the leading figure of really of kind of of the world youth culture at that time by virtue of the fact that he was the leader of the Beatles was startling I mean it was profound and you had to listen very carefully to why he was saying that what he was saying what what was he trying to do I mean he was aware that people followed him he was trying people don't follow me you know and uh I was moving there to be in that room and hear him say that. Such a personal declaration of his, such a a statement of of his faith or lack not lack of but of this new faith of who who he wanted to be. It was a very extremely powerful moment. I, I had not felt that that still. You just played that to me and then I hadn't heard it audio of it in years and it just goes. That blew me back there. Thanks.
1: Yeah. No, he, he I, listening to that whole that whole interview. By the way, is available if you want to look. It's on the uh, Rolling Stone uh, podcast. They they re put it back out. Oh great! And it's totally fascinating to hear him in that space and all the things. You know, through time, the Beatles have kind of had the edges sanded off, right? But like you were saying, he was very prickly in some ways, particularly about his kind of inner spiritual practice. You know, he was at that time he was doing this like primal therapy and these different things. And he was trying to, you know, it it felt like he was really in a moment where he was like trying to explain himself in a real way and coming up
2: kind of angry. Well, he was angry. I mean, because he expresses, look, when I was in grade school, they gave me trouble. They wouldn't, they wouldn't, they didn't realize I was a genius. I think I'm quoting like accurately there. <laughs> and he he never got felt he was treated the way he should be, and he was angry at those people, you know. Um I think, you know, obviously his therapy at the time touched a raw nerve and made him a little angrier than he could have or should have been. Uh but it was real. It was reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, Wendy wants to know.
1: Please ask on what debt, if any, Rolling This is a listener. Rolling Stone owes to its
2: forerunner Crawdaddy. Um, not much. Um, Crawdaddy's a way different kind of, it was kind of. It was it was nice. I read it. It was college students putting out these long, complicated essays about music that I didn't really quite understand what they were doing. But a, a fancy. I mean, it preceded us. It kind of set the, you know, the, the little mark for the place there would be. Rock and roll magazines. It's there that I read John Landau and went out and got him to come over to work and be part of the first issue. And there on a, of Rolling Stone, he became a great friend of mine, a legendary editor, and of course, Bruce Springsteen's manager and producer, which he's now most from. That's what I got from Crawdaddy. I mean, I liked Paul Williams, the founder of it, but we were in a whole, we were in kind of an all different mindset and a, a whole level of the different ambition.
1: Mm. You also started during this time to really beef up the investigative portions of Rolling Stone, right? I mean, you guys had always but, done some of that, but you started to bring in and and solidify your core as, you know, these big, beefy investigations, you know, into Altamont, uh, into the SLA and Patty Hearst, but, but a bunch
2: of other things too, right? Well, I guess sometime after Altamont or Manson, we, you know, we had kind of found on our muscles and our uh, our ability to move on these kind of things and the importance of them and the success of them. So, you know, I went out to build a staff of reporters and we hired Joe Estherhouse from a Cleveland Plain dealer. Uh, and he started off investigating the narcotics Squads in San Francisco and did a great job taking on the Bureau of Narcotics, the San Francisco Narc Squad over the years, got a lot of them fired and put in their places and lots of other things. And then we started, you know, doing Jesus Calls by Tim Cahill, and we brought quite a staff of serious, young, serious journalists from newspapers around the country. Uh, Howard Cohn from the Detroit Free Press, who ended up doing our Silkwood investigation and ended up doing the Patty Hearst expose. And it was a cracking staff at that time between, and Hunter, of course, was with, with covering his 72 election campaign. And so in that period, get 70 to 76, 77, we were firing, you know. It's what people called the golden age of Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. And it was a group of hungry young, ambitious reporters who I tried to profile as a group in the, in the book uh, that I led. And that was incredibly fun, incredibly yeah. powerful, and got incredibly well-recognized mm-hmm. and made the magazine incredibly important. Yeah. And it's discussed this incredibly fascinating new book I've written. <laughs> <laughs> like a Rolling Stone.
1: Like a Rolling That's Stone. the new memoir. Which they
2: say is really, uh, everybody's yeah. saying how well-written, how fast to read is, and how fun and enjoyable. And some people, it brings them back to their... roots, and Mm -hmm. and it's like a a trip through the time that we all grew up in. We're talking with Rolling Stone magazine founder Jan
1: Wenner about his new memoir, Like a Rolling Stone. Going to go out here to Janis Joplin. What are your memories of San Francisco scene from that time? What did you discover through Rolling Stone magazine? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email's forum at kqed.org. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Rolling Stone magazine founder Jan Wenner, of course founded here in San Francisco before he left us for New York. Uh, his new memoirs, Like a Rolling Stone, and you can give us a call with your memories of San Francisco's rock and roll scene from the 60s and 70s, or things that you discovered uh, in Rolling Stone. The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, and the emails forum at kqed.org. Uh, so, Jan, you clearly had an eye for an incredible array of writing talent. I mean, Tom Wolfe, Hunter S. Thompson, Landau, Ben Fonctoris. Uh, uh, there's a bunch of editors and writers. But when I go over the list, I mean, there aren't many women who wrote for the magazine in the golden age. And looking back,
2: how do you think about that? Well, <clears throat> I think it's a shame, but there, there really weren't that many women working. I mean, we're still coming out of the... It was just at the dawn of kind of the idea of of women's liberation and uh, the expanded role of women and, you know, everyday life uh, at all levels. Uh, so there wasn't people had not women had not gotten the kind of training experience of uh, uh, in journalism and in writing and business that they had been and that they have now had, and which women really dominate a lot of these fields. There are big names in a lot of these fields. But then we had women from the early days of the office. That was one of my very closest business associates, a woman named Laurel Gonzalez. Uh, we had women throughout the editorial department, key figures in it. And uh, writers, we we started to recruit, a, a f- recruit them kind of as they come in. We didn't make an effort to get women writers, but there was some strong women. Robin Green was very really, Strong in the early days, and wrote a lot of stuff for us. She came in and she had been uh, Stan Lee's assistant at Marvel Comics, and she came in and she wrote "Out of the Blue." She was like 22 or something, and she wrote a cover story about Marvel Comics, which we ran, which had the Hulk tearing down the logo on the cover. Um, and I think we, I think we did ourselves, we did well. We had women in key editorial positions then, and one of the top editors was a woman.
1: So you don't think what largely kept women out of the magazine as writers
2: was sexism or machismo inside the magazine itself? There was a lot of machismo in the magazine in those days with that crew. of I mean, it's pretty macho crew of investigative people and top reporters. Hunter, Tom Wolfe, you know, uh, uh, Esther House, Cahill, Grover Lewis, Paul Scanlon, Ben Functoris. That it, it was, it was absolutely a classic. But it wasn't it didn't conspire to keep anybody out and we really promote the women within as quickly as possible it's just we were operating on happenstance and serendipity and who knew who and you know there just weren't women writers then you can't name them that that but time, you knew like Joan Didion right I mean Joan Didion was Joan a, Didion a yeah, yeah. Joan, yeah but that was in the later later in the mid-70s and uh she wasn't exactly a recruitable or available staff writer. You know, she's already, she had been doing that at, uh, you know, in New York, but she was by then a full-scale novelist. So you you can't exactly, it's not available to you. I mean, I did try and get her to write for us. Yeah. How do you think the
1: you had there, but... composition of the staff ended up affecting what went into the magazine? Because, you know, we had, you know, Joni Mitchell in particular has long maintained that the magazine treated her in a sexist way and hurt women in music. I mean,
2: what do you think of the, her criticism? Well, <clears throat> I think that Joni was angry at us because we did do this thing like in about issue 12 or 13. We did that kind of a, a chart of the love lives of Laurel Canyon, all the interrelationships between... Crosby Stills and Buffalo Springfield, this. Anyway, the person most linked with most guys was Joni Mitchell. And so she took offense at this. And I like suppose Whiteley Solo was just a. I think it was kind of harmless. But in any case, she had a grudge against his fears. But meantime, she was on a cover like four times throughout the years. And we've made up since and all that stuff. Uh, but I don't believe we were sexist. I really don't. It's just that, I mean, we had the early women who were around. There's Grace Slick and. Jance Joplin, both of them had covers, both of them had extensive coverage. Whether women, Linda Ronstadt was around. But there weren't a lot of singer, there weren't a lot of singers and musicians who were women then. The Ace of Cups didn't start till I don't know, the eighties, late seventies, I, I forget one. But it just wasn't done. Mm-hmm. It wasn't there. It wasn't like, you know, Country Western, you know. It was, it was Tammy Wynette. It wasn't R and B, you know, with Aretha Franklin, but even in those fields, few women.
1: Yeah. There was an incredibly prominent contributor to Rolling Stone, Annie Liebutz. though. Okay. You want to talk about how, I mean, one of the, the stories from the book that's most fascinating is she actually got her first cover photo for Rolling Stone when she was like 20 years old, just a, a student, right?
2: She was a student at San Francisco Arts Arts Institute, whatever it's called. She was studying painting, not photography, but she one day came into offices unknown Found the art director and with her portfolio and left a couple of dozen pictures with us that we might use. We ended up using one. She came back and we started giving her assignments. I think one of her first was the Grace Slick and Paul Kanner. But she turned out to be an amazing individual, full of energy, and her photos were always good and strong and usable. And they were really she went inside it and she could compose it. She did a, it was a great job. I mean, she was great, almost from the get-go. But you couldn't see that down the line she would end up being the world's premier, photo, you know, portrait photographer. I mean, shooting the Queen of England on three different occasions, or two, two different ceremony occasions for her jubilee and for some other thing, birthday. Uh, but so she started in 1970. Now, that is a powerful woman, right at the core of Rolling Stone, who gave Rolling Stone, in great part, as much as any writer. Other than Hunter, its identity, and its character, and its sensibility, and to the same extent that Hunter was part of the DNA of Rolling Stone, so was Annie Leibovitz. So I forget to mention it because I'm not, I don't think, defensively about our role. But we had a powerful woman right in the middle of it from the very start, and Laurel, who was my key business person from the very, from like a, the second year, you know, or the first year. So I, I, I have nothing nothing to uh be ashamed of indeed quite a bit to crow about in regards to empowering women
1: uh you know it's it's interesting i, I do want i want to put on kathy from mill valley hey kathy welcome to the show
3: hey thanks howdy thanks so much it's a great interview look forward to getting the book my only comment is a caucasian woman mom of a biracial child is just the correction that, you know, coming out of the 50s, et cetera, there was a lot of working women who were black and brown and yellow. Um, yeah, the white women, we weren't working so much outside the home, but there was a lot of working women um, always, just not yeah. so much in the upper and mid, you know, classes. So just cont- context and our assumptions, I think we have to always be aware of uh, the perspective that we're coming from. But thanks, and I, I look forward to getting the book, um, and thanks so
2: much. Well, thank you. Thank you for calling, and thank you for buying that book today. <laughs> <laughs> but you, well, you're quite right. I mean, and it was an economic reality. You know, the the largesse of the post-war baby boom went to white people, you know, and, and it's ridiculous. And it's, the school system and all, it was always— I. Point, I think I point in the book, was always for white people. And, and you know, families from, you know, multi, multiracial families and families not, that are non-white had to work harder to get their money. They didn't have the access to the better jobs, to the better education, all that stuff. And it's a stain on this country that starts from the beginning, as we all know. I think today, though, we can say to ourselves and look at it and say, we have made more progress than ever. There's lots to go, but the progress has been really significant in the last 30 or 40 years. I mean, 50 years ago, you know, it was many ways. It was Jim Crow era still. Now, you know, you can be president of the United States. It's an easy formulation to make. It may sound glib, but there's a great truth to that, that the society has opened up to blacks, to gays, to women, to all kinds of people. And I give part of the credit to that, too, the baby boom generation and what we did and as represented in, in in Rolling Stone and what it stood for. Jan, How different do you
1: think your life would have been? I mean, later in, in life, you uh, ended up partnering with a man after being married to a woman for many years. How different do you think your life would have been if you had grown up at a time where there was less oppression of gay people?
2: Um, Probably m- much different, I suppose I would have. Probably felt that uh, kind of the that the license, not license. The license was there to just be yourself. I mean, I don't think that uh, many gay men are going to marriages today because they don't feel they have to, or that's not the norm anymore. There's so many role models on television and music and TV and all the stuff indicating that well, you know, gay life is just another expression of you who you are as a human being. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, probably could have gone that way, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you do you think you would have gotten married to a woman, or do you think
2: that... I I, I tend to doubt it. I think I would have probably been just, you know, with a ma- man or a young man, whatever. I, I don't know, you know, it's a lot... I don't want to sound coy about it, but <clears throat> a lot of it is just who you fall in love with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I fell in love with this woman... Uh, that I met early at Ramparts, and, you know, it was a very successful relationship and partnership and with Rolling Stone running throughout it and having three kids and going around the world. It was great, you know, but then I fell in love again with somebody else. (laughs) You know, uh, what
1: do you think is Rolling Stone's most lasting contribution
2: to, to the culture? Um I think that the our recognition of the generation uh, and its priorities and its drive and its mission and the defining helping to define that and carry that out in culture and the arts, particularly in music. It's our def and, and our coverage of politics. Defining a time and the, the highest aspirations of that time are that, does that sound right for a defining— <laughs> Yeah, yes, yeah, so laying out the, the a cultural ideal that people could yeah, aspire to. A cultural and political ideal. Yeah. You know, covering that, sponsoring that, promoting it, and and uh, speaking on its behalf. Yeah. We're talking with Rolling Stone magazine founder
1: Jan Wenner about his new memoir, Like a Rolling Stone. David writes in to say, From 1970 when I turned 15 to sometime in the late 70s, it was a must-read cover to cover every issue. It entertained me and helped shape me in ways I am not even sure of today. Thank you, Jan, and all the writers at Rolling Stone. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information on how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I want to take us back one more time. I want to go uh, to the phones at least one more time.
2: Get Can we like thank a... David, the previous writer? He oh, yeah. he defined the purchase of Rolling Stone as well as I did. You know, we it, we were his a guide to a new life for him. Yeah, yeah.
1: Here is uh, Eric in Palo Alto. Welcome.
5: Wow, well, thank you very much. I I remember you, Jan. I've met you. I think in maybe Matt Katz's office or at the Avalon. I just wanted to say you kind of. Uh, took my point. I graduated in 68. We used to go up to the psychedelic shop and buy tickets in 64, 65 to see The Dead or Muddy Waters or, you know, Yusef Lateef or Timothy, you know, or Lenny Bruce. Bill put on so many shows. I ended up working at the Avalon. My roommate ended up working at the Fillmore. I'm a musician. I've been a professional musician my whole life. I'm not trained to do anything else. And... <laughs> You took the narrative that maybe you saw Dylan on the cover of, you know, Time magazine or whatever, but I'm I was brought up in a home. My dad was a superintendent of schools and to kind of have this narrative of rock and roll and music being intelligent and having depth and dynamic. You guys just blew that out of the park. Mm. And it gave me a way to go to my parents in the sixties and show them that this stuff was deeper and, and much more sophisticated than just a bunch of hippies on H Street. So I'm thanking you. We used to go buy Zap Comics and your magazine. <laughs> so well that, it was an unbelievable... That's a, oh, lovely, yeah, I've had,
2: lovely to hear. I mean, it's just everything we tried and wanted to do. And when you talk about Matt Katz and the Avalon, it just takes me back to those days in the psychedelic shop. I mean, what a time. And it wasn't all nuts. Yeah. We 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 were having fun and doing something real.
1: Yeah. yeah. But
2: I'm glad I helped you with your folks. <laughs>
1: you yeah. know, um, Curtis, one of our listeners, writes in to say, does Jan see any similarities between the young thinker, free thinkers of the 1970s and
2: today's youth movement in Gen Z? Oh, yeah, I do. I think there's the spirit of youth and rebellion and examining curiosity all still exists, I think. Music is still a very powerful force for young people. It's not the only force like it was for us. When we grew up, There's only music you could talk to or through or talk to you. It wasn't on television. It wasn't in any other medium. Uh, and now it's available in all kinds of areas for young people to get in touch with other people through the internet and all this stuff. But um, it's still a powerful medium for them intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, and I think that young people uh, are the key to solving, you know, one of the keys to solving the climate crisis. I mean, they, there's a, they've got a lot of stuff to get done on that score and um, uh, are committed to it. And so I think it would be just as powerful. It's a different moment. It has different forms, different challenges, but I still feel that spirit reign is still going to be out there and pushing away. Yeah. You
1: know, as we come to the end of the hour here, just wanted to ask... You know, you guys panned Nevermind, uh, the, yeah. the Nirvana album. Uh, just, just settling some Gen X scores, sorry. Uh, but would you, uh, are there things that you would want to pull back from the magazine that
2: you feel like, you know, that one was a mistake? Well, you know, there's a couple of ones later on down the road. Uh, we, you know, the UVA story, which turned out to be we were hoaxed by somebody, was a big blow to us. It was the first time we really screwed up like that. You know, I made a mistake in putting the Boston bomber on the cover. A great story, legitimate, award-winning story, in fact. But putting the image of the individual on the cover was too much for most, certainly all the people around Boston. They, I didn't appreciate that, that by this time, the cover in people's minds was reserved for people who deserved it and who were icons or heroic or something special. And so it was like we had turned, they, people saying we'd turn him into a rock star, you know, bomber. I mean, um. Some other reviews, never mind. I think we were wrong on a bunch of records and a bunch of groups, but nothing terminal. I mean, it was all in all from the, our sense of integrity and what we thought was true and uh, being well meaning. I mean, there's some snarky or in the early days. There's some really snarky reviewers, and I had to get and I got rid of them <laughs> um, because I didn't think it was right to be some run some snark review of a group that. Had just put, you know, two months into really crafting an album and working hard on it and all this stuff. And serious man, some, ass, you know, idiot reviewer comes along and uses an excuse to review what the clothes they wear, the album jacket or cover, or whatever, and just write some riff that you know is humorous to them, but of no purpose to our audience, who wants to know what record to buy, and no purpose to the artist, who should be rewarded with thoughtful criticism and praise is appropriate. Well, this yeah. anyway. So, you're not much.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Darren tweets, love driving over the Golden Gate Bridge listening to this delicious interview. Thank you. And Pete writes, I bought the first issue of Rolling Stone in a heartbeat. The combination of music, art, politics and drugs was irresistible. I often wonder what Hunter S. Thompson would be writing today and would it be in Rolling Stone? We've been talking with Jan Wenner, founder of Rolling Stone Magazine. He's got a new memoir out, Like a Rolling Stone. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you, Jan.
2: Alexis. It's been fun. <laughs> Very fun.
1: I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts.